I remember Declan Kidney shouting in messages saying, Wally's to go number eight, I'm about seven and Dunica six. I just kind of stayed at number eight and ignored him. <laughs> the Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neve Briggs. Subscribe to the rugby channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. Okay, so look, really excited to bring you our next guest. I think a lot of you will remember the Bears of 1985. Jim McMahon, of course, was the quarterback that year, played for 15 seasons in the NFL, is a two-time a Super Bowl winner. In particular, it's 85 when he took the Chicago Bears all the way to the Super Bowl, which made him a legend in the city and a household name across the country. And we're very, very happy that as the Super Bowl approaches, Jim McMahon is with us in the show. Jim, great to have you on. Hey, good to be here. Thank you. Do you still, with Super Bowl approaching, do you still enjoy watching the game and love the game? Uh, I don't really watch the game much anymore. I did check out the playoffs last week. Uh, I have some friends that are still coaching in the league, so I like to see how they're doing. Uh, I saw a hell of a game in the Buffalo, Kansas City. Uh, Andy Reid is a good friend of mine. He was my left tackle in college, so I've known Andy for a long, long time. And uh, just happy to see him doing well again. Mm. Any reason you don't watch as much football these days? Well, I've been retired 26 years now, so it's, uh, you know, it seems like a long, a lifetime ago. So uh, I've got other things that I've, I've got going on. I've got five grandkids now that uh, keep you busy. And, uh, you know, if I get a chance to just, you know, check scores or something like that, that's usually what I do. Well, if you don't mind, just for a brief time, I'll bring you back to a lifetime ago because... 1980s was when I think NFL started to make a bit of a breakthrough in Ireland. So I suspect there are fans of a certain vintage who uh, support the Chicago Bears because of you and because of your team. Uh, To make a long story short, you grew up in California. You were drafted to the Bears in 1982 after a great college career. And uh, reading about you and listening to people talk about you, you seemed to be a quarterback who was a bit rock and roll, who played with a reckless abandon for his body, who was all action, who loved to run and dive head first as opposed to slide with your legs and hit the deck early and uh, really um, played with a certain abandon. Would that be a fair description of your style of play as quarterback? Yes, I, that's pretty, pretty good. I, uh, I, never, I never really liked giving myself up. You know, I, I did slide a couple of times and I got hit after I slid. So I'm like, if I'm going to give myself up and get hit, I'm going to make them tackle me from here on out. So uh, I would always think, you know, what if they miss the tackle? You know, I might score. You know, that was my mindset. Uh, so I, I didn't like giving myself up like that. I wanted to make them earn the tackle. What uh, struck me as well is on the field, you weren't afraid as quarterback to change a play in the huddle or even at the line of scrimmage, which I'm sure your, your coach, Mike Ditka, loved. Uh, so tell us about that. Was that on the basis of hours of study or were you more of an instinctive quarterback and you could feel what the game required in the moment? Well, I, I got excellent coaching in college. You know, We got to throw the ball quite a bit in my college career. So I understood defense and I understood, uh, you know, what, what they were trying to do to you. And I was taught in college that if you can exploit something on the defense to do it. And so I carried that with me throughout my whole career. And sometimes uh, it would upset the coach, but I really didn't care about the coach's feelings at the time. I was out there trying to win ball games. And, uh, you know, I would have loved to play with Mike Ditka. Mike Ditka was a great football player. Hell of a tight, I think he was the first tight end inducted into the Hall of Fame. 
And uh, I think had he been in my huddle, he would have understood me a lot better too, because then he would have realized I actually knew what I was doing. Instead of doing things just to, he thought just to piss him off, I was trying to win games. And if that upset him, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really worry about that. Mm. That's interesting you say that because I was watching a documentary where Ditka, Mike Ditka said, you know, if I told Jim to run the ball, he threw the ball. If I told Jim to throw the ball, he ran the ball. He, 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 I think he almost saw you as a bit of a rebel without a cause at times, as opposed to doing what you felt was right. I'm sure he did, but uh, I think he finally looked back on his career when uh, George Hallis was his coach in Chicago. And, uh, and uh, him and George had a lot of run-ins themselves. And in fact, Mike Ditka left Chicago as a player because they wouldn't pay him, pay him what he wanted to get paid, right? So back in the 80s, when I was with Chicago, we had some guys sitting out in training camp and stuff, wanting more money. And Ditka would be upset about it. And I say, hey, wait a minute now. You, you did the same thing. You left here because they wouldn't pay you. So it, it's amazing how, how their uh, attitude changes when they become coaches or, or front office people. Your team and your teammates must have had a lot of faith in you when you change a play last minute. So uh, give us a sense. Did any of them come to you and say, here, Jim, we can't be doing this last minute stuff. You know, we have a play. You can't change the play. They obviously believed in what you were doing and trusted you. Well, that's the thing. My, the guys in the huddle knew that I knew what I was doing. You know, they, they understood that I understood the game and I wasn't doing things just to, just to piss anybody off. I tried to win ball game yeah. and I tried to do it, you know, the way I thought would work. And, uh, it was pretty successful. Yeah. I wonder, because again, I don't remember this period and I've been looking back at it. What looms large when people talk about you is your attitude and the rock and roll style and the motorbikes and the saying controversial things or getting yourself in all sorts of interesting situations. I wonder if in some respects that overshadows what a great understanding of the game you had, because obviously the other stuff is what garners attention. Well, I'm sure it did. But again, I, I never thought about, you know, what, what other people thought about me or, you know, all I worried about was the people in my huddle. And those guys understood me. They had my back always. And, uh, you know, that's why we were successful. People have made the point that there was incredible personality in that team. Like they remembered certain Super Bowl teams come and go. People don't remember them. The 85 Chicago Bears team are famous. And it was full of interesting characters. Is that a fair thing to say? Oh, no doubt about it. You know, we had some we had some great football players, but we like to have a lot of fun too, and uh, we did. You know, I would always say, look, it doesn't really matter what you do during the week. What's it's what matters is what happens on game day. And if you win games, a lot of the other stuff just goes away. You know, all the, the criticisms and this and that, or oh, he should be doing this or doing that. It didn't matter to me. As long as we won the game on Sunday, they could say whatever they want. What made that 85 team great then? What made them Super Bowl champions? Well, we, we had some of the best players in the league. Uh, you know, we were, we were very good in 1984 as well. You know, we went to the NFC Championship game in 84. Uh, I wasn't playing. I had, had hurt my kidney uh, during the year. But we made it to the championship. Uh, in 1985, we went 15-1, and won, won the Super Bowl. And everybody thinks we fell off the map after that. But uh, the very next year, we were 14-2. and two. We had the best record in the league for the next four years straight. We had home field advantage in the playoffs four years straight. Uh, and we just didn't get it done in the playoffs. You know, we 
you work all, all year to get that home field advantage, and then we just didn't take advantage of that. It was very uh, depressing, but, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like we went away after 85. We were still good. In 1988, we, we lost the NFC Championship game again at home. So in five years, we went to three of NFC Championship games and only won one of those. So that was a bummer to us, and uh, people still talk about that, but they can't take away 85. Mm. What impact did 85 have on the city of Chicago? Do you remember? Oh, the city went nuts. The city's a, it's a Chicago bear town. You know, they, they love the bears. You know, the Michael Jordan came in in the, in the nineties and, and uh, they won six championships, but it was like, yeah, it was nice to win them, but the bears fans want the bears to win. What reaction do you get when you go back to the city now? Uh, the city's always treated me great. I lived there for 28 years. My family was, uh, they all grew up there. Uh, still, my oldest son still lives in the Chicago area. Everybody else has left. Uh, I've got uh, one in California, two out here in Arizona now. But uh, yeah, they love the city. The city's always treated me well. and It's hard to pay for a beer when I go back. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Because again, not everybody is remembered. And uh, this team seems to be not least... Uh, in Chicago, uh, I don't want to overstate uh, the uh, the wild boy image, but to give examples, your very first press conference when you show up. Now, most of us, me included, would be on best behavior, would be trying to make a good impression. You show up and have a beer in the middle of your uh, first press conference. So, I mean, talk about, hey, everybody, I'm going to be me no matter what kind of an attitude. Uh, the relationship with your coach, Mike Ditka, he as I understand it, was disciplinarian, Iron Mike, strict, did not think much, for instance, of you drinking a beer in your first press conference, nor did the owners. Was that constantly a, a, a tense, difficult relationship, Jim, or did you, did you find a certain equilibrium as the years went on? Well, early on, it wasn't bad. Uh, speaking of that first time I met the press, it was, it was draft day. You know, they called me up, they're going to draft me. Can you come to Chicago this, this evening? I said, sure. So I take a three-hour flight from Utah to, to uh, Chicago. Uh, they pick me up in a limousine. I got a 45-minute ride now to the Hallis Hall, and they've got beer in the limo. You know, it's there. It's not like I'm 18 years old. I was almost 23. So I thought, hell, I'll have a beer. It's been, you know, I've been traveling for four hours. And, so I had a couple, and then as I'm getting out of the limo, there was still a couple left on the string, so I grabbed those with me and, and stood out of the car, and I, I wasn't even thinking about the press. And uh, they were right there, and, and Coach Dicka was actually walking into the building at the time, and he looked at me and said, so you're my first-round pick, huh? And I said, I guess so. And then I went in to, to meet George Hallis. But, uh, yeah, that was my first uh, run-in with Mike. The two guys ahead of me, uh, Vince Evans and Bob Avellini, had been there for – you know, five, six, seven years. And uh, I think, you know, Mike didn't have a very high opinion of those two and he wanted me to play early. Uh, and so I think he, you know, he allowed me to do some things, but uh, he wanted me to play. And once I started playing, you know, we started winning games and, and things got pretty good. And then uh, after, after 1985, it just seemed like we won because of Mike Ditka. You know, that's how he was, you know, he did every commercial known to man. Uh, he, he actually got on some of the players about doing, doing endorsements. He said, hey, I, I don't want any more of you guys doing these endorsements. It's taken away from your, your football. And 
Yeah, I did all mine in the off season. I, I didn't take away from football to do any of the, any endorsements. Everything was done in the off season. But I remember two of our offensive linemen had a deal to do a, I think it was a Campbell Chunky Soup commercial. And Ditka said, no, you're not doing it. And then about a week later, Ditka was doing the Campbell Soup commercial. So we were like, wait a minute. He tells us to stop and he keeps doing it. So I think he, he lost a lot of respect from the guys uh, just from that aspect. Okay, interesting. Did you cultivate the image you had? And by that, I mean the... Um you know, the, the photo shoots and the, uh, the motorbike, the loud comments, there's, you know, a time where you've got an injured glute and the press are asking you what's the progress in the injury. And so you turn around and you moon them. Um, whatever about the beer in your first press conference, not being aware of the press, uh, certainly, I mean, talking to you, very smart man, you're, you're not unaware of how you're being perceived. Did you very much embrace the I suppose rebel without a cause for want of a better phrase. Did you, did you sort of embrace that image? You know, I, I still meet a lot of people to this day that, you know, they only knew me through press, you know, newspapers or, or TV. And they're like, you know, you, you're really not like what they say in the media as well. You know, the media, you can, you can toy with the media, which I did a lot. Right. I would say things just to, just to get a reaction. Out. And like, you know, it'd be headlines in the next day, but I really didn't care. Why did you toy with them as a matter of interest, just for kicks? Because they, they were a pain in the ass to me. And they would, they would ask, you know, some of the dumbest questions in the world. And, and a lot of times it, they repeat the same questions. And sure. They ask you right after a game, why, why this and this happened? You know, you don't really, right after the game, you don't really realize what, what happened until you watch the film the next day. And I'd say, well, wait till tomorrow. I'll tell you why I did a certain thing. Uh, but it just, it just got to be, I just, I just started toying with them. Because they, they were messing with me. I was messing with them right back. I did, you know, I said, you guys write whatever you want. Just like what happened down at the Super Bowl, the guy, a reporter came out and said that I had called all the women of New Orleans sluts and the men were stupid. Mm. And this is two days before, three days before the game. And so I was getting death threats. Uh, you know, I don't really remember much of the Super Bowl because I just wanted to get the hell out of town before one of these crazies got to me. But uh, the story was obviously false. I never said it. And uh, how the guy, I guess they just wanted to, to screw with my head to maybe that I would mess up in the game. And obviously it didn't help him. Yeah. I mean, that was a shocking incident. And eventually uh, those responsible admitted it was completely false and they apologized. But I guess the damage is done when you have a police outside your room trying to protect you two days, three days out from. Oh, yeah. We That's had women, women picketing the hotel every day. Uh, I remember on uh, Friday night before the game, they let the wives come down. So they, they were staying in a different hotel. I went and stayed with my wife at uh, their hotel. I was walking back to the, our hotel Saturday morning to go to practice. And there was, there was bomb techs there. There was cops everywhere. And I'm like, hey, what happened? They said there was a bomb threat. So, I mean... You know, I've seen all the crazy movies like Black Sunday and this and that. If they want you bad enough, they're going to get you. And so during practice that week, none of the guys would stand by me on the field because we, we practiced at the old Saints facility and there was an apartment complex that overlooked that field. And so nobody wanted to stand, but they thought they were going to get shot. Not just like black humor. Hey, I'm not going to stand beside you. Like, seriously, I'm not standing beside no, they you. Were, they were, they said, man, you, you really pissed them off this time. I said, I didn't do anything. And this guy made up a story and, and, you know, they tried to put the heat on me, but uh, thank God it all worked out. Mm. Did that 
winning the Super Bowl live up to what you hope and dream it will be? Some sports people say reaching the the pinnacle can be a great anticlimax. Others say it's everything they did hope it would be, and it's as fulfilling and ecstatic as they hoped it would be. What was winning the '85 Super Bowl like for you? Well, it was great because that was our goal. You know, we came into the season, you know, knowing we were going to be a good football team, and nothing less than winning that Super Bowl was going to be accepted by our team. And uh, so it was great to do it, but uh, you know, you got to do it again the following year, or yeah. else you know. They just kind of, oh, you guys are one-year wonders. But like I said, we were, we were, nobody wanted to play us in those four years, five years. I did ask someone who was a big NFL fan in the 80s. I just said, with Jim McMahon coming on, anything I should mention about that Bears team. And he said two things. He said, one, their defense is maybe the greatest defense ever. And secondly, and I guess here's the funny thing about what sticks in people's memories. He said, ask him about the Super Bowl shuffle, uh, which I've, I've YouTubed and, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's true you boys are having a bit of fun there's like a rap song that you release Super Bowl year and uh, again this is not a team who are shy about doing this it's like we're doing this we actually did it uh, we still had I think four or five games left to play or three or four games left to play in the season and so and they ended up filming the that shuffle the, the day after we lost our only game you know we were in Miami on a Monday night we lose uh, the guys had to be at the studio. We got back from Miami probably three or four in the morning. They had to be at the studio at eight in the morning or nine, something like that. They were there for about eight hours. And Walter and I, Walter Payton and I both told them we're not doing the video because when the, when they approached us during the season, this is how it was Willie Galt's idea with his friend who was in the music business. They say, hey, we want to do a record, a record. And then our proceeds will, will feed the homeless on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we thought, okay, that's a good thing for Chicago. So that's why we agreed to do it. Right. So we did our we did our speaking parts at a studio. About a week after that, Willie comes to us and said, now we have to do a video. And we're like, no, that's that's not part of the deal. He goes, no, no, when you make a record now, you have to do a video too. I said, well, that, that wasn't in a contract. Yeah. So Walter and I both said, we're not going to the taping. And we didn't. And so those guys did their thing for the eight hours. And then about a week after that, Willie came to us right before practice one day and said, hey, if you guys don't do your parts, we're going to have to sue you. So here's a teammate wanting to sue us for, for not, you know, we did our part of the contract, but now we have to do this stupid thing. So what you see, my part there, we, Walter and I both did it after practice one day in the racquetball court at Hallis Hall. We had a green screen behind us and then we, you know, what, Whatever you see up there is one pissed off white man doing his thing because <laughs> I didn't really want to do it. Okay. Uh, but everybody yeah. still brings it up. I can't go anywhere without that damn song getting played. I, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's remembered. So uh, Super Bowl <laughs> Shuffle, uh, people can YouTube that if they want to get it. Well, I'm, I'm going to rewatch it now and, and look for the anger uh, deep in your eyes somewhere. Um, to Again, for the uh, brevity's purposes, you, you, when you leave the Bears, it's injury is a big thing, and that second half of your career is that enjoyable or a bit of a pain in the ass or mixture of the two? What was that? What was that? If you had to sum up that second half of your career, well, I was, I really wanted to get out of Chicago in '86 or in '87 uh, because Dick and I were not getting along. Uh, they were complaining that I was faking my injuries. I mean, I, I dislocated my throwing shoulder. The first game of 1986, I should have never played again. I should have had surgery right away. I could have been ready for the uh, opening of the 1987 season. 
but I was getting misinformation from the doctors and the trainers. They kept telling me there was nothing wrong with it. And I, I kept trying to play. They, so one day I could practice and throw. The next day I couldn't move my arm. And they thought I was faking it. And I'm like, why would I be faking? I played two years ago with a torn kidney. And now you're saying I don't want to play. I, I just didn't get that. And I was, I just had had enough. I wanted out. And so when I left Chicago, you know, I, I played another eight years. Uh, got to travel around, got to play with some, some other great teams. Uh, our defense in Philadelphia in 1991 might have been every bit as good as the 85 team. They were, they were a hell of a football team. We finished 10 and 6 that year in 91, didn't go to the playoffs. Uh, but uh, ended up my career in Green Bay. Played my last year and a half there, uh, backing up Brett Favre. Had a good time, got a nice ring out of it. And I, you know, after I was 37 years old, I had promised my oldest daughter, because they had to move the eight years that I'd, we'd, we'd move from wherever I, in Chicago to wherever I was playing. And then they, they'd go there until Christmas break and then come back to their regular school. And I said, when you get to high school, I'll, I'll quit because I had to move when I was in high school. My junior year in high school, I was in San Jose, California, played my first years of high school ball there, and then had to move to Utah. And that was quite devastating. So I didn't want to put my kids through that. And I said, hey, I'm done. You know, I got two rings from the two oldest franchises in, in the NFL. And uh, my body was, uh, I was actually feeling pretty good when I retired because I hadn't really been hit for a year and a half. So. But I, I know I could have played a couple more years, but like I said, I didn't want my kids to have to deal with all that. The image maybe of the, you know, the wild kid that actually immediately post-career, I think your priorities were play some golf and hang out with my kids and have family time. That was the priority, you know, for the supposed madman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, all those, a lot of those stories, I mean, who knows where they came from, but I enjoyed my time. I enjoyed messing with them. I enjoyed hanging out with my guys and I still do. I mean, I still having a, having a fun time. Uh, the last couple of months have been rough. I'm, I've had, uh, I had a surgery on my ankle that I put off for about five years. Uh, the day before Thanksgiving, I had the surgery and, uh, three days later I had a big infection. I had to go back into the hospital for eight days. They did two more surgeries. I've been on my couch now for the last almost two months. I'm still trying to walk, still can't walk, but, uh, had some big open sores on my foot from the uh, from the infections. Those are those are finally healing up, and uh, hopefully be able to walk around here in the next couple of weeks. Okay, well, best of luck with that, uh, Jim. It will completely shock people if they're not already aware, listening to you talk so coherently and um, you know vividly about the past and 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 communicating no problem here that in 2012 you were diagnosed with early onset dementia at the age of 53 which must have been uh, devastating I'll, I'll talk about that diagnosis in a moment but to listen to you talk now you seem in really good mental health so am i am i getting you on a very good day or have you managed to be like this most of the time or where are you in your treatment well i, I go back to new york about every three or four months depending on if i bump my head or sleep wrong i've got some problems in my neck and my head uh, where my spinal fluid doesn't flow properly. I had a broken neck at some point in my career that kind of blocks the flow. Uh, my atlas bone, it's supposed to be perpendicular to your spine. And when they first put me in the MRI, mine was pretty much straight up and down. So it, was, it had been out of whack for 20 some years. And I was basically a vegetable. I mean, I was laying in my room for weeks at a time in a dark room. The only time I felt halfway decent is when I was laying down. 
and he explained to me because when you're sitting up or standing, gravity is pushing your head down a little bit and causing that the spinal flow to get cut off. And so uh, these doctors, after reading that Sports Illustrated article about my head, they called me and said, come to New York. We think we can help you. And you have to spend a week here. And I said, why a week? And they said, well, we think what's happening is happening. It's we'll adjust you, but it's not going to last. And sure enough, you know, they explained to me what they thought. They put me in the MRI and they, they confirmed their, their opinions. And they said, look, and, and then they adjusted me. And it's not a manual adjustment. It's, it's called IGAD. It's image guided Atlas treatment. And it's a machine that looks like a drill bit. They put behind my ear somewhere. And all I, all I hear is a click and it sends a vibrating pulse through the neck and it moves the bones enough to let the fluid out. And the first time they did that, I, I sat up and within a minute or two, I could actually feel this fluid leaving my brain. And I said, doc, I don't know what you just did, but I, you know, I can talk again. My, my eyes were jaundiced. Uh, and he said, well, he goes, I don't think this is going to last because it's been out of whack for 20 some years. The muscles are probably going to pull it back. And sure enough, that night I woke up in excruciating pain. I couldn't move my neck. I went back to the doctor the next morning. They had to sedate me to lay me on the table to, to adjust it again. But he said, the longer I can keep it in place, the longer it will stay in place. So I've, I've been, you know, every three to four months, as soon as I start having headaches and start you know, forgetting things, that's when I know it's time to go back to the doctor. At least I know now what is wrong with me. You know, I've, I've had some teammates that have taken their own lives because they were suffering from the same uh, afflictions. And uh, I, I, I could never understand how they could do that to themselves. But I was having those same thoughts myself when I was laying in that dark room, thinking, you know, this, this hurts so bad. I, you know, had I had a weapon, I probably wouldn't be here. But uh, thank God these guys you know, at least allow me to function normally, you know, for three or four months. And then when I start having problems, I, I call them right away. Doc, I'll see you in, see you in New York and, and I get it taken care of. I'd rather deal with this than, than have to go through all that again. Reading one of your uh, teammates, and again, I hope nobody finds this upsetting. So if you're of a sensitive disposition, maybe uh, turn off the radio for a moment because it does uh, revolve around um these very serious topics. I, I read a teammate of yours, for instance, shot himself in the chest so as to preserve his brain because he was just so obviously sure that what he was suffering was um, diagnosable. And I presume he thought CT, uh, CTE or something in that vicinity. Am, am I right in saying you, you're pretty sure you've CTE or that that's your strong suspicion or is it more the spinal there's, situation? There's no doubt. There's no doubt that I've got it because it, like I said, that stuff was sitting there for years at a time. And uh, it just, it, you know, your spinal fluid is supposed to go in and flush all the toxins out of your brain. And when it's just sitting there, it's just like a the doc explained to me, it was like a cesspool, it just starts eating away at the brain. And that's where the, the CTE comes or this, the holes in the brain, stuff like that. So obviously I've got some form of it, but uh, you know, I'm able to function, like I said, as long as I keep getting these treatments, I'm able to function normally. And, uh, you know, my long-term, I can, I can remember things from long, long time ago, but like yesterday, you know, a week ago, I, those, those don't seem to stick in my head. Okay. And Jim, obviously your body took punishment. To what extent did you play with concussions or, or how much mental um, damage do you think you endured in your career? Well, I, I, I think I had three or four, 
diagnosed concussion, but um, I know I had quite a few others that I, you know, they just never, you know, as long as back then the doctor would put his finger up and say, hey, follow the finger. And if you could do that, you can go back in. You know, it was like tape and aspirin. You got a headache, tape and aspirin to your helmet. You'll be fine. That's how it used to be. But, uh, you know, I think they're doing a, you know, they're trying to do as good as they can nowadays. You know, the guys get ding, they go into that tent on the sideline. I don't know what they do in there, but uh, some guys come out of the tent and can go back in. Some guys can't. You know, this is a violent game, you know, and your brain is not suspended by anything. You know, it's sitting in a uh, pool of fluid. It's only connected to your spinal cord. And so when you're, you uh, have a collision, your brain's going to hit the side of your skull and you're going to have some problems. And uh, you just have to, to take the time to let it heal. Some, some of them heal within days. Some of them take weeks and months. It all depends on the, uh, you know, the, the amount of contact that it had with your, with your skull. It must be a huge relief to you to have the treatment available to you in New York because it, it sounds like what you were going through otherwise was unendurable. Yeah, like I said, I, I would spend weeks at a time just laying in a dark room, looking at the ceiling fan and uh, contemplating what, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to continue doing this? Or uh, I'm, I'm just so thankful that those guys contacted me because I, I knew nothing about them. And, uh, you know, this, the guy I see, he's, he's a chiropractor by trade, but he's studied the brain and brain injuries for the last 30 something years. And he's, he speaks all over the world about it. And uh, this guy, all he wants to do is help people. You know, he just said, I, I send them anybody that my friends that are having issues, I send them to him. And they seem to be doing better now because of that. And as a sample size, say, how have your 85 Bears team progressed health-wise? I know I mentioned one of your teammates, but generally, is it a, is it a sorry tale or have, have, have a fair number got through okay? Well, I've... I believe the majority are doing pretty well. Uh, one of my teammates, Steve McMichael, he was a big, strong defensive lineman. Uh, he's suffering really bad from ALS right now. I mean, he is, he's a shell of him, former self. You know, he went from walking to a wheelchair. Now he's bedridden, uh, can't, can't really speak anymore. And he was one of the biggest, strongest guys to ever play. And now he's, he's probably smaller than I am. Uh, it's just sad to see what that disease can do. And it, a lot of people are are dealing with this. A lot of a lot of ex football players are dealing with it, and it's just tough to see. Because in 2011, you took one of the early cases against the NFL. It was by 2017 the NFL made that settlement at large with uh, however many uh, former football players. And I presume I don't know money has been is has been handed out since, but I don't know to what extent. How have, in your opinion, how has the NFL behaved over the last seven, eight, nine, ten years on this issue? Well, I don't know why they called it the concussion lawsuit because concussions have nothing to do with with the outcome of a lawsuit, unless you come down with either ALS, dementia, Parkinson's. Um, I think there was three or four different afflictions. Unless you actually have a, a diagnosis diagnosis for that, you don't get anything. I was one of the named plaintiffs in that lawsuit. And I went through their protocol, their testing. And basically, I sat in front of a guy for six hours, and he asked me the same 10 questions for six hours to see how many I could remember. And I said, is this the idea to, to make sure I can I remember enough to say I'm not impaired? And that's how, it's, it's exactly what it was, because they told me I wasn't impaired enough. 
And I said, can I take this test again when I'm having my episode? But I said, I don't want to do that because the longer I wait, the more pain I got to deal with. Because as soon as I start having these problems, I, I go right to New York because it, it gets unbearable. You know, it's, it's like somebody sticking a knife in your head. And uh, but I haven't heard back. So I'm still pursuing it. Uh, hopefully, you know, down, you know, like I, you said earlier, I, I was diagnosed with early dementia. But they said I didn't have full on dementia, I guess. So uh, until I'm impaired enough, I won't see anything out of the NFL. Okay. Is uh, life pretty okay these days under the circumstances? Are you playing a bit of golf still? Can you go about your business and do the normal things people like doing? You mentioned your grandchildren. Yeah, I mean, like I said, when I'm, uh, when I'm in, in position here, when I'm not out of whack, I'm, I'm basically pretty normal. Um, you know, I love to play golf, love to get back to Ireland and play. I was there probably seven, eight years ago. Uh, Ireland took a trip to Ireland and Scotland and got to play some golf. So I look forward to coming back. I want to bring my two sons over there to play and, uh, have some fun. With a name like Jim McMahon, there must be some Irish ancestry there. Well, I got to believe there is, you know, I'm, I'm really white and I like to drink. So I got to be Irish. <laughs> Well, we can we can check that out if you're ever back playing golf. Um, listen, great to talk to you as we as we build up to the Super Bowl, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will very, very, very fondly remember that Bears 1980s team and '85 in particular. So, Jim McMahon, uh, thanks so much for your time. Great to hear you're doing uh, well after a tough couple of years, and we might talk to you again if you're ever playing golf over here. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.